Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast and this week I've got two guests Lizzie Penny and Alex Hurst who are co-authors of WorkStyle and they're co-CEOs of Hoxby which is a marketing and future of work consultancy and we're going to talk to them about their new book and their methodology WorkStyle and also and this sort of work that they've been doing through their consultancy so um, Lizzie, Alex, hi there and welcome. Thank you for having us. And First of all, what is WorkStyle? I was quite intrigued by it. I've had a little look at your stuff online um, and it's piqued my interest, but I don't exactly know what it is. So who can enlighten me? Uh, I'll start. I'll try and enlighten you. Um, So WorkStyle is a word that we created um, to mean the complete freedom to choose when and where you work for yourself um, on the basis that we have such freedom to choose and design our lifestyle, but really haven't had the same ability and autonomy to decide our work style for ourselves. It's been very much a case of working typically nine to five, Monday to Friday, um, or some variation on that theme. Um, And we felt that in the digital age and the ability to work from anywhere and at any time, um, increasingly, we needed a word to enable people to talk about their individual preference for when and where to work in a way that wasn't loaded with prejudice or stereotype of working uh you know anything other than a traditional nine to five be that a part-timer or a flexible worker or someone who's shirking from home as we often heard Uh, so work style is the complete freedom to choose when and where you work okay and i mean it's interesting of course when and where we work and we, we know that we've been had more flexibility uh, imposed on us actually by COVID. And then I'm hearing more and more employers imposing less flexibility back. So is, is this something that you're uh, you're seeing that everyone should be able to do? I guess that one of the challenges also is not I, not everyone can choose their work style. I'm assuming in certain industries, it's not so much. So are you targeting this at certain industries? Yes, we are. Um, I think that we feel that this is... Um, an attitude as well as a systemic change for work. So we feel that everyone should have the freedom to choose when and where they work, but we recognize that for some industries that's easier than others. So this fits perfectly with the knowledge economy. There are 2.5 million businesses in the UK knowledge economy and globally there are around a billion knowledge workers. So even if only knowledge workers adopted work style working, it could have a really significant impact on the world of work. However, there are also other industries where 
there is a pressing need to work differently. That might be companies that have an aging workforce and need to find a way to retain them in the future. It could be um, areas of employment that are in crisis, such as midwifery in the UK. And actually in the book, we have a case study on a company called Bertzorg, and that shows how it can be applied to the nursing profession. So I think for us, we recognize that we champion one extreme of work style, which is everyone having the complete freedom to choose when and where they work. But for some organizations, it's going to be more about adopting the mindset of how can we give more autonomy to our workforce and recognize the individualized nature of work and that everyone now has different circumstances that mean they may, may work most productively in different ways. I didn't say, but should have said, um, we came up with the word work style in 2014. So this pre predates the pandemic um, and actually was the result of us observing radical shifts that were happening in, in the landscape of work even long before the pandemic. So technology was enabling us to work from anywhere. We were tethering to our mobile phones, um, to you know, from our laptops to work from parks. Um, the gig economy was was booming. Uh, and there are 4.6 million self-employed people in the UK, and it's one of the fastest growing labour forces that we have. But also that the population was ageing. You know, the demographic of the workforce is shifting hugely. And actually, these things kind of came together to show us that the current structure of work and current way of thinking about work in terms of fixed time and place is no longer relevant. So though the pandemic has served as a bit of a catalyst for writing the book, uh, the shift towards this way of working uh, was happening long before. And actually, the, the it's not only generated, I suppose, a catalyst for the book and, and chain people having to use digital and accept and get to use things like that, to, you know, thinking about Zoom and, and all the teams and all the sort of things that we now all use daily. But it's also exacerbated it because there's been a lot of people who've left the workforce. So the whole thing about keeping your ageing workers or keeping those skills, people, there's a more of an issue than ever, isn't there, in terms of keeping people in, involved? Absolutely. And just to give you a statistic, 21% of the worldwide population will be over 60 by 2050. We simply cannot keep on functioning as productive economies without changing the way that we work in order to involve more older workers. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the pandemic has made us um, more adept at using technologies and understanding the, the right combination of technologies. For example, we've always worked on Slack. We don't have an office at Hoxby. Slack is our office. Um, but I think there is a big element of this that is about understanding the groups that are fundamentally excluded from work by our current nine to five, five day a week working structure, which is 200 years old. It's a legacy from Sir Robert Owen and the Industrial Revolution. Um, and understanding that those excluded groups have a meaningful contribution to bring to work, but they are systemically excluded. And so making this change will not only mean that they can be included in work, it will improve our diversity of our organisations, which, as we all know, um, produces better outcomes as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really keen to find out more about um, how we can do that. And particularly, I really liked the fact that you've got an example. I've just been listening to the radio about you know, the midwifery crisis. The NHS. You've got examples in industries that aren't just knowledge workers, which, which are less 
easy to find a fix. So I'm keen to hear more about that later. But before we go there, let's um, let me understand a little bit more about how you two got into this, because you both got quite interesting backgrounds, haven't you? Yes. So Alex and I came to this, to that conversation in the pub or through different routes. Um, So I had um, worked in a a traditional way and I uh, then had a child. And it was when I had my first child that I'm kind of embarrassed to say, really, that opened my eyes to the pervasive inequalities at work. And until then, my husband and I had had really equal careers. I'd worked really hard. I'd progressed at the same rate. And then suddenly I had a child and I found that actually it didn't suit me to not only work five days a week, but to work in the day when he was awake. I wasn't going out anymore in the evening. I might as well be working in the evening. And I didn't want to be judged on when and where I was working. I wanted to be judged on the output that I was putting into it. So for me, that was the real catalyst was becoming a parent and then recognizing that these other groups were excluded. But since then, I've also um, had some changes in my life circumstances. I had some serious complications in my second pregnancy with my twin daughters. Uh, I've moved across the country um, to little old Bristol and had no interruption to how I work. Um, And also I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2020, which already was a bit of a hectic year for everyone. Um, And so for me, this is profoundly personal because I've gone from just wanting um, for myself to work as a parent in a new way to actually finding that this has been something of a lifeline for me through some of the toughest times of my life to be able to keep working in a way that I find really motivating um, and fulfilling um, yeah during difficult times so I, I won't say Alex's story I'll let him let him tell his own because it's slightly different from mine thank you Lizzie um, slightly different um, so I have had well my wife has had children <laughs> recently so I can relate to to that side but um, but actually my story predates becoming a father um, I was somebody who um, enjoyed working hard. Um, I put in typically a 60-hour week. Um, I liked to be first in the office and last out, and I did that for a good number of years. Um, and it would be easy to say that I didn't enjoy it in hindsight, but actually I did. I, I really got a lot of um, positive energy from it. Um, but eventually I burnt out. Um, and I reached a, a sort of psychological low where I no longer enjoyed it um, and actually felt uh, a kind of numb ambivalence to it. I didn't really feel at the highs or the lows um, in the same way as I had before. And at a small but growing business, those highs and lows are acute. Um, and so I kind of got to the point where I had to do something about it. Um, I took some time off, some time away um, to, well, a week away, a holiday. Um, But I I can't tell you anything about that holiday. Um, I have literally very little by way of memory or recollection of it because I wasn't really present while I was there. Um, And psychologically, the the thing that I realised coming off that was that it wasn't time off that I needed. I needed to just rethink how I was thinking about work, what I was appraising my success on was it really valid uh to think that a 60 hour week is doing a good job or should i be looking at it differently should i be considering in terms of output and outcomes rather than hours spent and that was the kind of um 
eye-opening moment for me, really, and the thing that helped me to realise that I needed to stop thinking in terms of time and start thinking in terms of output, um, which led me to a conversation with Lizzie in the pub, and we both realised we, we kind of wanted the same thing, which was the autonomy to decide when and where we work for ourselves and the freedom to be judged on what we output, not what we input. Did you so, need, Alice, did you need yeah. to have like something, of, when you're working 60 hours a week, you can't have had that much life out of work. I mean, you said mm. had kids, but often <clears> yeah. out, when something in your life becomes important to you outside of work, then you kind of have a motivation to mm. things mm. down. Well, yes. I mean, we, we uh, I mean, Olivia, our daughter, wasn't even a twinkle at the time, I must admit. Um, the, the, the reality was my wife um, called me out and said, you know, you're a shadow of yourself. Uh, you know, she, she'd asked me a simple question, like, what should we have for dinner? And I wouldn't have an answer. Um, and so it was her sort of uh, holding up a mirror, really, that helped me to see that there was a problem and something that we needed to fix. Um, and then once that had happened, once we fixed it and, you know, work style and Hoxby had been created, that actually gave us the the platform to start a family, which is amazing. Um, but it's but it wasn't the, uh, the the thing, if you like, that that started the process. I mean, it's interesting when you're working sixty hours a week. You've got a question actually: if you were burnt out outside of it, whether you were your best you for all of those hours as well, right? Quite absolutely, and it, in hindsight, it's very obvious, um, and perhaps. Um, it was obvious to people around me, but um, it's quite a hard thing to see for yourself, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all about quality, mm. isn't it, here? So, yeah. so I can get why, I totally get why you're, you're passionate about that. And um, and what we want to do is kind of explore more about how we can make that happen, I guess, and how could um, HR professionals, which is the majority of our audience, or employers think about being open-minded about this approach, maybe. What, what thoughts have you got there? Yeah, I think um, in terms of adopting a work style approach, we recognise that the, the way we work um, and the way Hoxby is structured is quite radical. Um, so the first thing we would say is read the book. You know, it lays out everything in our heads. And the reason we wrote the book, as Alex alluded to earlier, was because during the pandemic, everyone wanted to talk to us about how we worked. We wanted to open source it to everyone. And there just wasn't time for those conversations. So that's really where the book came from. The second thing is that for us, um, we went looking for work style organizations when we came up with the concept and they didn't exist. And so we created Hoxby, um, a social enterprise and now B Corp as a test environment for work style. We wanted to prove that you can do brilliant work. You can have people having great well-being levels and that you can include people who otherwise wouldn't be included in work. Um, in an actual functioning way. And we knew we needed to prove that before anyone would really listen to us and believe that this could be done. Um, and the pandemic certainly helped with people being open to this conversation. It was much harder for people to understand it. There were a lot more naysayers before the pandemic. But we learned three things very quickly with setting up a Hoxby. So the first was um, that work needs to be done asynchronously rather than synchronously. So People need to be able to work in a way that doesn't require them to be in the same time um, and at the same place at the same time. So being able to be asynchronous is really important to work style. The second thing is that we all need to adopt a digital first mentality. It's amazing how many people will still say, oh, we, we need to have a meeting face to face to discuss that. 
it's it's just not true. You know, we've got Hoxbees that Alex and I have never met. We've worked with hugely productively for years and we've never met them in real life. They're in other countries and that's completely fine. And so moving to that digital first mentality is really important. And then the third thing we quickly found was that a trust-based culture is fundamentally needed to underpin work style. It doesn't work if you don't have that trust. And so culture is really important in how we how you can possibly adopt work style, even in any kind of a pilot or in a small way. And that also requires an understanding of remote leadership. So leading in a way that is inclusive when you're all working remotely. The other thing that um, we've mentioned, but I think is really important for anyone who's looking to adopt a bit more of a work style way of working is the concept of autonomy. Um, and obviously lots of people are talking about autonomy at the moment, but I think we're talking about genuine autonomy here rather than just flexing at the edges, rather than being in the outgroup dynamic that just happens to not work on a Friday and you feel like you're missing out on all the fun stuff at work. Um, this is about true autonomy to choose when and where you work. Uh, and that makes people more productive. You know, even autonomy over the layout of your workspace can make you 32% more productive. Um, and autonomy has been proven time and again um, to improve productivity in all different ways. You know, better work-life balance, better job satisfaction, better engagement and productivity are all improved where stress, staff turnover, exhaustion are all decreased. So we know that autonomy is really good, but a lot of organizations can't quite see that link to putting it into practice. And we think that piloting work style could be the answer to that. So, I mean, why those, I get, I get your four points. I get, I, I can see asynchronous, but I suppose what I'm thinking, I can see all of those things being essential and, and key aspects to it. And I can also hear fellow HR professionals saying, yes, but in my organization, right? So asynchronous working, when we've worked with developers that are on a different time zone, that works, but it means you've got to wait 24 hours to move a project on, whereas you could be face-to-face, so there would be an objection there. In terms of something like um, the trust-based thing, is that about is that about the culture of the organization? Is it about the individual managers? What are they scared of? Um, is everybody ready for autonomy? I'm sure you've had these sort of things. So how would you address some of those sort of yes, but questions? There are loads of yes, but questions, um, Lucinda. And actually, that's what we love, because I think the point of WorkStyle is to start a conversation. It's for us to start a conversation about whether we are working in a way that is appropriate for the era that we live in now. Um, and we have spent eight years running a big experiment at Hoxby to see how this works in practice. And that doesn't mean there haven't been myriad challenges to overcome in doing so. Um, so we love those conversations. Um, in terms of things that need to happen quickly, it's amazing how you can bring together mesh work styles as we talk about. So work styles that fit perfectly together to deliver things quickly. So for instance, um, we have a studio offering, um, which is a design studio. And we have people working on that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because we've got people in 35 countries who each set their own work styles. And so we understand people's work styles. They're, they're transparent with us about that. And we can set up for things to be happening either 24 hours always on or to have a big group of people coming together. They might not all be based in the UK, for instance. Some people might be working in the evening in the US or Asia in order for us to make that happen. So I think 
there are levels of infrastructure that are needed. Um, and then I also think there is, like you said, this cultural element. So a lot of people say to us, well, you just don't get the same connection, which I think is part of what you're alluding to in terms of trust. But actually, more than half of Brits say they suffer from loneliness in the workplace anyway. Let's not be fooled to thinking that when people are sitting in the same room, they're not lonely. Connection isn't about physically being together. It's about connecting on a deeper level. So actually, I think WorkStyle opens up the opportunity to connect people and bring together teams in a different way and engage them in a different way, but to do it purposely. Whereas I think sometimes if you are together in the same physical space, there can be the belief that simply by doing that, that's enough to create connection. Whereas when you're working in a remote way, you have to purposely do that to bring people together. I would I would add as well, <laughs> um, we're at the start of this revolution. Mm. People have been working in the traditional way for more than 200 years. Um, much of the practices around work and what we believe are anchored in times when we were a manufacturing economy. We needed to be in factories for shift patterns um, that we that we don't anymore. And the book and Hoxby are designed to show people that times have, have really changed and perhaps we should be rethinking the very operating system of work and using that stimulus to enable people to apply fresh thinking to, to whatever their line of work is. So it's to inspire fresh thinking as much as anything else. Understanding that we are at the dawn of a new revolution. In another 200 years time, if we're still working uh, to you know, shared hours of nine to five and, and offices, I will be very, very surprised. In fact, we will have learned how to work asynchronously. We will be more trust-based and uh, we will be able to be digital first. It'll be an inherent part of the way we work, that we all have a work style. But we have to overcome our fear of change and our uh, reticence to adopt new practices in order to move it forward. And I think what's happening now with post-pandemic decisions is this is the time that people will look back on and determine whether humanity took the opportunity that was in front of them or not, took the opportunity to embrace the digital age uh, and the, the, the attitudinal shift created by the pandemic to fundamentally do something different or whether they reverted back to the safety and comfort zone of, of the way we've been doing it for 200 years. I mean, I've talked about flexible working and, uh, and hybrid working and all those sorts of things. I, I think that's very narrow-minded for many employers because people undoubtedly want a work style or flexibility at the very least, and they're going to vote with their feet in terms of retaining people and that sort of thing. I think that's I think that's right. I think organizations are recognizing that they need to have flexible and hybrid working in order to attract and retain talent. I guess our concerns is whether it goes far enough. And, you know, flexible working, for example, again, we talk in the book um, about the, the specific areas where we feel it's not going far enough. Um, and there are three challenges with it. I love a three. Um, firstly, it, it's based on an industrial age system. It's still just flexing around it at the edge. Mm -hmm. The second thing is it's creating in-group, out-group dynamics. So the majority of the workforce might be in the office. Um, 
nine to five, at least a few days a week. And so the people who are not feel excluded in some way. And then the third thing is, it's just not creating change fast enough. In the book, we talk about seven excluded groups. And these are people who are structurally excluded from work. So that's older workers, carers, those with chronic illness, physical disabilities, mental health challenges, parents, or people who are neurodivergent. Those groups are all structurally excluded from work currently in some way. And flexible working is not driving change fast enough. And in some of those areas, it's not driving change at all. You know, autism, for instance, we're seeing it going in the wrong direction in terms of the gap um, statistics there for how many people want to work but can't. So that's why we feel that flexible working is almost our biggest threat because organisations think that that is the answer, pay lip service to it, whereas they're not fundamentally restructuring work enough. Can I ask a basic question? Um, this on on a lot of those, I can understand why people are excluded from work. I can see those. I don't understand why the neurodivergent is excluded or why work style helps. Could you help me understand that? Yeah, so that is because um, for many people who are neurodivergent, um, sensory overload is a real, uh, really important characteristic. Um, and so for them, needing to be in a physical office space is often really overwhelming. And for many, they'll self-select out of working simply because they don't want to do that. Um, the foreword to the book is written by Dame Stephanie Shirley, who was a, a or is a, an amazing campaigner um, for inclusion at work and specifically around neurodiversity as well, but also someone who um, had a crazy idea in the 70s to start a radically different way of working. And she has spoken a lot about this as well, about the important role that that hugely talented group of people could play in the workforce, um, but that they're currently being structurally excluded from work because of us going to a place and often working in open plan offices, for yeah, instance, suddenly a birthday fun. cake comes out, everyone's singing happy birthday and they weren't told it was going to happen. Stuff, Just small things like that can make a really big difference. Yeah, I guess it would have been completely unaware of that in my times in an office. And you probably have to go in and sit, the commuting as well would would add to that over, overload. Absolutely. I think, I think right, I sorry, I was just going to say, I think, I think the important thing for all of these groups and that autonomy enables is, is choice for people to decide for themselves what works for them. Um, and what we mustn't do is fall into a trap of assuming that what works for one person works for everyone, because that is the problem with traditional work and work that is mandated by an employer. What we need is to create the conditions to give people the, the tools and the autonomy to decide for themselves. Now, that will throw up fresh challenges, particularly for neurodivergent people to, to set those boundaries. But it is in the pursuit of something better in the future, a, a more inclusive future of work, that those challenges can be overcome. So though there will be fresh and different challenges creating that autonomy, the evidence uh, overwhelmingly suggests that it's worth doing. Thanks. The, um, the, the notes, that it's interesting that where you went there with that, because I'd written down earlier project management, I'll explain where I'm going with it. You use these things about changing the operating system of work, which it's, it's, it's almost flipping things on its head. And I thought earlier when you were thinking, how do you get people to work on this project? It's almost project management has always been sort of about 
about the project, not about the people and the people I'd slot into it. So it's almost we're going, let's look at the the people's things and we work out, right, that's how we, we've just got more jigsaw pieces or we start with the people's wants to make it work. It's starting in a different place, it feels, which is thinking things quite differently for many employers and, and it's not traditional. Just going on to the ones that I was really interested in, whether you can share one of the case studies or something, how have you, you say you've had some success with nursing or some shift type working, you know, something where it's a, a, a more tricky uh, environment or traditionally you'd go, it's non-knowledge worker. Have you got an example you could share that where you've had success with a, a non-knowledge working type environment? Well, I think Lizzie talked about Wurzel earlier in the conversation, which is uh, an organisation out of uh, the Netherlands who are, uh, and uh, they are a, a distributed community of nurses and what they do is rather than operate in the traditional healthcare pyramid, they empower um, nurses to work independently and as groups within communities to support the needs of local residents. So those nurses are, um, they work as a team, but they they undertake a lot, a broader range of responsibilities than a nurse might in a hospital setting, for example. Mm-hmm. So they're empowered to to triage and um, provide a, a personal care program for an individual <clears throat> that means that they can um, manage their own workload, uh, manage their workload as a group. Um, and also provide a, an efficient service uh, as a private service. Um, that is a business that was started uh, with enabling autonomy in mind, and actually much of the business is, is technology-led, um, <clears throat> but it's also with a human understanding that you can access uh, more people who can provide care to people who need it better through a system that is that is geographically flexible than a system that is geographically inflexible so rather than having a a fixed number of people operating in a hospital setting having a limitless number of people operating out in the community and really that's just an example of approaching the problem of providing care to a great number of people in a completely different way and that's the kind of level of rethinking that we're hoping that workstyle can inspire. That's it. So it was is it similar with the um midwives, as in so they were kind of empowered to support in a certain way? Or was that in their hospital environment? The mid the midwives was more an example of an area that needs workstyle than one that's actually adopted it. Um there we would love to do some workstyle work with midwifery because we feel like it's an area that really needs it, but we haven't seen that yet. But we feel like it's where there's a crisis that actually organisations or the NHS will have to look at different approaches. Um, and therefore, that's where we might see the fastest change, which often comes from a crisis. Yeah, thinking how could we make it work in some way to get that re- to get the, the resources back up. And because, of course, actually, if you think about it in something like the health service, you don't really find people who are more motivated to do a great job than people like that. They're, they're in it from a vocational point of view. It's just not constraining, giving them the opportunity to work when they want, where they want and deliver great, great practice. Yet again, the controls sometimes are counterproductive, aren't they? We're not going to solve today, but uh, I would no, we'd like to. <laughs> that would be amazing. 
Okay, so bringing this all together, um, I mean, we've talked about a little bit about how HR can support it, or maybe are there any practical tips you've got to do with what HR um, or employers can do to maybe just dip their toe in the water to be a bit more radical about work style and all those, you know, the kind of benefits that they'd expect to get from this? Yeah, I mean, the thing that we haven't talked about yet is the benefit of having more diverse organisations. So um, <clears throat> obviously the ability to enable autonomy and be more inclusive in the way that we've talked about attracting these otherwise excluded people into our organisations can increase the diversity of our people, our cognitive diversity, and therefore our collective intelligence. We are fascinated by the science of collective intelligence, and we're trying to apply it a lot at Hoxby to the projects we do. So from an organisational point of view, we think there's a huge amount that can be gained there um, by eliminating groupthink and homogeneity and replacing it with diversity, constructive criticism, challenging thought, and and hopefully an increased collective intelligence. So from an organisational point of view, there's a massive opportunity there to be had, not to mention the societal one of, of including people in work who otherwise wouldn't. In terms of the tips that you talked about, I think the, the main thing that we would talk about is the framework we use in the book, which is set, project and respect your own work style. So um, for anyone in an organisation that wants to look to try and adopt a bit of a work style mentality, that's the process we would suggest that they go through. So start by encouraging individuals to really consider what they want their work style to be, to consider their individual circumstances and how their work could fit around it and how they can work with the most productive. For instance, some people are larks, some people are night owls. Then the second thing is project it. So telling people about your work style and organisations creating a forum where people can talk openly and with confidence about their individual working preferences in that way. And then respecting the work style um, and that's really about boundary setting um, and making those boundaries as non-negotiable as possible the interesting thing that we found at Hoxby is that actually people are much better at respecting other people's work styles than they are respecting their own um, and so depending on the organization there could be challenges either way with that but set project and respect is the overall framework that we would suggest for anyone wanting to give it a go yeah, and, and that is, and that in itself is another piece in terms of us as individuals learning how to think for ourselves and ha- learning how to be autonomous and to prioritise our whole well-being and, and that yes. sort of thing. It's, Definitely. it's the, the skill for um, the work style worker and the future of work, we think. I do some of my best work, Lucinda, when I'm folding the washing, some of my best thinking and taking time out in the middle of the afternoon if I'm in a bit of a blocker to go and fold the washing is not something you would think is a really productive way to work. But for me, it's a very productive way to work. Yeah, about getting it done and different times of day as well. Um, guys, thank you so much for coming yeah. on the HR Uprising podcast. Your book was out on the 13th of October. So we'll put the link in the show notes for anyone who'd like to go and order it for themselves. Um, and yeah, best of luck with with where you're going with this. It's great to see some radical thinking and some challenging um, think the way we can work together. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you for you having us. Thank you very much for having us. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. 
Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.